I, I tell you what, though, like a couple of my first tours were with um, Christian artists. It was Zayo, Living Sacrifice, The Ludicrous, and Not Waving But Drowning. That was before they were um, Ludicrous. We should, uh, Norma we should Jean. talk about this Norma on Jean. the episode, Kyle. Yeah. We should, should get I thought you were recording right now. We are, but I got to do the intro. I got to tell everyone who Dennis is. Oh, cripes. You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, sponsored by Audix. Hear what you've been missing. Audix is proud to introduce the new line of dynamic closed-back headphones designed for audio professionals and audiophiles to deliver the most accurate sound possible. I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be Welcome back to the Signal Noise Podcast on Pro Sound Web. As always, I'm Michael Lawrence, joined by the boys, Chris Leonard, Kyle Trinside. What's going on, fellas? How's it going? It's it's good. It's good. I, Dude, I didn't no- get anything in my tire today. That was Chris. Brian oh, Lane. yes. Yes. I, I barely made it. But more importantly, Michael, the tacos and quesadilla you texted us right before this episode look amazing. Yeah, it's a new it's a new uh, place that opened up in my town, and I had, to, I had to try it. So you'll get the full review later, I'm sure. Yes. Um, pretty excited about tonight's episode. You've been really lie. excited. You're not. Gonna <laughs> I've been. I've been pretty excited. Our our guest this episode is Mr. Dennis Culp. Dennis is the executive producer and owner of Singing Serpent, which uh, they're they're a company that does music and sound design for what what I will say is an impressive list of major name clients: Kraft, Target, HP, Jack Daniels, Nike. Uh, Vans, Subaru, Visa, Burger King, PlayStation. Um, so, if you've seen those really cool commercials on, never TV, heard of them. You never heard of any of those with the only, cool music only in the one background. That stood out was HP, mate. <laughs> but uh, more importantly, to me personally, Dennis is also the trombone player for my favorite band of all time, Five Iron Frenzy. Dennis, thanks for being with us, man. Hi, Yay. thanks for having me. This is are you, you're joining us from uh, from New York tonight. Where are you, where are you? Located? I am. I'm in the lovely state of New Jersey, just outside oh, of New York right. City. There you go. Yeah. There so, are some of us still alive. <laughs> COVID, I think, has wiped out about 90%. But, you know, now I went outside the other day and, and I now, saw some people. So that was good. Now everybody can get a cab and find, and they don't have to stand <laughs> on the train. <laughs> exactly. Everyone gets a seat now. That's true. <laughs> Dude, I, I had to take Amtrak up to New York the other day uh, to go to B&H for something uh, last minute. I'm, I'm down in Philly. It was the most eeriest thing I've ever experienced. And, I mean, I know it's opened back up more, but, I mean, uh, Penn Station was just uh, a rush hour. There was, like, four people. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know many people that are riding. So, Did you have your own train car, Chris? Not quite my own car, but, I mean, it was it was still – it was pretty – it was empty. It was well, It was weird. If you want your own car, you just get on and start coughing, <laughs> <laughs> and it will be yours. So, so, man, we got we got so many cool things that we want to talk to you about, Dennis. But uh, I think first, let's—I mean, let's kind of rewind a little bit. Kyle, you were saying a lot of your first tours were were with uh, kind of up and coming Christian bands, right? So you you kind of were in a lot of the same circles that maybe Dennis was in at the time. Yeah, it it seems like it, and and it was like the best learning experience ever. Uh, I think one because everyone had great attitudes. It was ridiculous. I did a what was it? Zayo, Living Sacrifice, The Ludicrous before they were Norma Jean, and this band from St. Louis, Not Waving But Drowning, on a Solid State tour. So we got to meet a ton of like the Tooth and Nail bands. Um, did a few of the festivals, 
and and it seemed like at the time it was super cool because obviously hardcore music kind of encompassed a whole for lack of better term shit ton of other genres and that's what we were talking about before we started recording it's like you could play with a ska band you could play with an emo band you could play with a hardcore band a metal band and like get away with it legitimately like have a killer festival and i think uh, it was a great learning experience for me that's for sure um it, it was fun and you surprised us all we were all sitting around talking one day and you're like five iron frenzy is my favorite band and and i was like <laughs> hold on michael lawrence the michael lawrence so but here's the funny thing so i was surprised because so uh i was like dude you you, you love scott i love scott he's like no i hate scott i just love fire <laughs> frenzy. i'm like wait a minute i said and you, you don't like christian music and you don't like scott but five iron frenzy is your favorite i what is going on my 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 i was like 11 or 12 my cousin was a couple years older than me he had uh he had dentist the live record proof proof that the youth are revolting um and i hadn't heard anything like that before he had a walkman like with the double a batteries in it you know it spin the yeah. cd around and i put that thing on and i was like man this is wild stuff and uh i it really just kind of opened my eyes and it just i heard a totally different thai style of music than i've been exposed to before and it really stuck with me man and actually i mean to this day when i'm working with horns in the studio uh, your albums are very heavily stuff that I reference in terms of how to arrange the horns, how to mix the horns, how to how to how to get that whole sound. So it's 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 been really formative on me, you know, not only technically but also obviously. I just really like the music, so uh, you know, it's that's, it's kind of been it's been cool, you know. That's interesting because we had no idea what we were doing. Um, <laughs> so the, the idea of someone referencing our work is almost comical to me. But well, the new the uh, awesome. the newer stuff, especially uh, the horn sounds are really cool. They've got this kind of roomy, platey room sound to them. But, but you know, they're not a, a lot of horns on recordings. They're very harsh. They got too much of that like upper harmonic stuff that that I find unpleasant. But the five iron horns always have this kind of nice round sound to them that I really like. I was always referencing uh, Rocket from the Crypt, where yeah. they kind of had this. Yeah, it, it was kind of this wall of sound and the and like I call it a tapestry and the horns were just kind of part of the tapestry. And I, I really don't like it when they're too separated or, you know, sitting on top or anything like that. It kind of it kind of bothers me. You guys I mean, were kind of in the heyday of ska, too. Like you guys played with like the Toasters, Blue Meanies, like all did. the heavy hitters of the ska bands. I'm sure like one of them had to be your favorite, like which one did you enjoy touring with the most? Oh, good. I mean, to listen to the Blue Meanies absolutely destroyed everybody. In my opinion, I'm a jazz guy, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, just like <clears throat> compositionally, thematically, everything they did just, in my opinion, just blew the doors off of everybody else. So at that time, though, uh, so there are a few other like Christian ska bands that came about, uh, Insiders and Supertones, you know, namely really. Um, what did did it ever feel like that they were like modeling you guys or just the, the ska scene had popped and were you tight with those guys at all did you guys ever collaborate uh didn't really collaborate uh we definitely shared the stage we were definitely friends i mean those guys were great storytellers and, and just great guys i think that um we all came from sort of different places actually like the supertones were super into um traditional ska they listen to a ton of rock steady and you know just traditional stuff and the insiders were kind of into metal 
Um, yeah, that's that's why I liked Insiders more. <laughs> I like they, they had a heavier grit to them, like yeah. distorted guitars in there and stuff. It was a little more rough ska. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, you know, they definitely had a grittier, heavier sound. And we were when we started, we were listening. There were two records that were on repeat, and it was No Effects, Punk and Drublick, and Weezer, the Blue Album. Nice. We could listen to those constantly, and you could probably totally hear those two records in our first one. And so we had this melodic kind of power pop thing. I think we really wanted to be a power pop band um, with horns. And it's really spa, evolved. Like, yeah. I mean, it's it's really remarkable to me to hear that evolution. Um, and obviously, I think there's a parallel. I mean, you guys are all growing up and getting married and having kids and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think if you're mixing like like a rock trio, right? I mean, it's about every we want the drums and the guitar and the bass to just take up all the space. Like John Mayer was talking about with the trio, they're all trying to just fill that space. And I think when you've got as many people in the band as you guys have, it's like the opposite. Like you guys probably have to be very, very careful with the arrangements and you can't, everyone can't just do whatever they want when you, have, when you have so much going on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I read a book by, I, I read Joe Jackson's book. It's called a cure for gravity. And uh, he taught, I'm talking about the, the British singer songwriter, not Michael's dad. Um, yeah. but, um, his, he talks a lot about arrangement and arranging is more about, you know, you should only use what you need to get the idea across and anything else is just in the way. And so mm -hmm. like, um, and when you have eight people in the band, you can get in trouble. And, uh, sometimes you feel like writing a horn part just cause you feel like you should. And you know, these guys were all standing around with nothing to do. So write us a part, <laughs> but like, you know, we, I, we really try to have each part have a purpose. And, um, I think it's really interesting having, uh, single note distorted electric guitar, double saxophone. I think that's a really interesting sound. Like, you know, put, put different things in unison. And therefore, you know, you're kind of working as a team rather than just kind of layering crap. Yeah. It's, very, it's like counterpoint almost. A lot of those those horn lines and the way they play, it's it's not the typical, you know, we're going to go up there and strum some power chords. I mean, it, it's very intricate arranging. I think that's a lot of uh, why I find it so interesting as a listener. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm really into that. I'm, I'm, I really like answering the vocals. Um, I like doing a little jab in between phrases and stuff like that. Cause it's like a conversation and if everybody's talking at the same time, nobody right. hears anything. So ha have you been involved in the engineering aspect of it since that band, or did you kind of get involved with it over the recording process and your live process? How, how did you start getting into the actual like arrangement and recording of the stuff? I'm really interested in, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the ideas of production, um, the aesthetic, the approach, definitely the, the, the overall schematic of a song, but I've never been a gear guy. I've never been, I've never really gotten into the nuts and bolts, um, until lately. Like I've, I've actually started doing a lot of my own editing. I've been recording a lot of music for my, for my company lately. And that's partially just COVID and partially just, I just wanted to grow. So, um, Early on, I was definitely a part of like listening to the takes, evaluating the quality, you know, talking about the arrangements and stuff like that. But as far as like getting into the gear and, you know, I'm the guy that's just like, yeah, I definitely like that microphone. It's smoother than that one. Let's go with that one. Like on that level, I was into it. But I, I, I you know, I'm not one of these guys that starts listing off 
serial numbers and stuff like that. <laughs> when, but we are. <laughs> when you guys are on stage, so we'll, we'll talk about this because obviously I've had a ton of ska bands come through. Like I got to make this mix the Scottalites when I was a kid, and oh nice, and that was like probably one of my crowning achievements. One because I could understand their accent and they loved me, and I mixed monitors, so it was a direct communication with them. But it can get really messy up there especially, you know, heavy guitars, a lot of horns, fast people moving all over the place. I'm sure a lot of monitor engineers freaked out on you guys. <laughs> so how did you guys kind of uh, compensate? Like you would know what you need or did you guys just kind of wing it every night and say thank you and sorry about, you know, all your stuff on stage? But <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we actually, uh, we reformed in 2012. Uh, we took a hiatus, so we, we played our last show at the end of 2003. Took about eight years off. I'm checking my math. I guess that would be nine. Um, and when we reformed, we, we did a, a crowdfunding campaign, and one of the first things we bought was this in-ear monitor rig. And um, so we have this rack we carry with us to every show on all of our flyouts and everything. It, it costs a fortune to fly with it, but... We'll set up in any room anywhere and all of the, all the mics go through our rack and then into the board. And so we don't even use a, a monitor guy. Like we dial our own, you know, and then we have, you know, these iPhone, iPhone apps or whatever, where we can mix ourselves. And it's amazing because we sound exactly the same everywhere we play. Um, so that's totally revolutionized what we do imperative it's it's almost like the consistency now if you had that 10 12 years ago when you guys started it would be way different oh one show from the next would be night and day <laughs> i mean yeah couldn't be more different you know sometimes we'd be on this enormous stage and it's so clean and we're so far away from the cloud it was almost stale the next night it would be this tiny room on a stage it's like a foot high and all we could hear was a crowd and it was super fun, but I'm sure we played terrible because we couldn't hear anything. <laughs> you know, it's just like totally different night from night. And now it's like, now it's exactly the same. And, uh, and, and key to that is like, we definitely have room mics. So we feel like we're in the room. It's not like mm. totally sterile and isolated, but, um, I love it. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty common trend. Uh, and I think part of what led to that trend was, you know, the size and price of what's available now, like the X32s, the M32s, the, you know, the Allen Heath stuff that's just like compact stuff you can put in a rack. I mean, the consistencies that, you know, the, the club acts can get from night to night is unparalleled. Uh, and ultimately, the, the show's going to be better. E even if it doesn't sound as good at front of house, you guys are going to play better because you're able to have a consistent consistent sound for yourselves every night. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the biggest difference is pitch. Um, mm. You know, for sure. Pitch is just like and, night and, day. and singers being able to save their voice. I mean, going right. from massive stage or you don't have to find your spot anymore. Like I always watch my artists and they always if we're on wedges, traditional wedges only, they'll like find that spot on the stage that's really comfortable to them where they can get pitch or use their instrument against their body to get pitch. But now with in-ears, it's like freedom. Like 
you're not going to blow out your voice. You're not going to overplay. Like you can use dynamics in your ears and hear the other members, or you don't even have to listen to anybody's shit anymore. Like I don't want to hear that guitar <laughs> player. Don't even put them in my ears. Like that that's huge, you know. And the the first thing that I noticed was when bands went to ears and started playing with a click track, like that was a phenomenal discovery too is is holy cow and everything's in tempo and everything starts at the right time and ends at the right time um had to be huge for you guys too oh my gosh yeah i mean uh michael was saying his his first record he listened to was you know proof that the youth are revolting like the tempos are at least double what they are on the record oh it's you know? madness dude just <laughs> total adrenaline and like we look back on that and we're just like what the hell were we doing like you can't even hear like th that doesn't even sound like a horn line that just sounds like vomit like, <laughs> just but when you guys did the kickstarter show uh the your first big show back like there's video of that on youtube and i'm like man this is a whole different ball game like the yeah. tempos are locked in and you guys are just sitting in the groove and it's it's really i mean i i that's it was so striking as a listener to hear that it was really neat yeah i mean now and well and we were probably better rehearsed for that show than we were for, for our entire existence <laughs> you know because we wanted it to, i mean there was a there was a we wanted to come back and make a statement like you know we can do this mm. And, uh, you know, quickly we went back to not caring, but that show, <laughs> we were great. <laughs> so you guys are, you're working on a new record right now we until are. this shakes apart is called, I believe. Um, it is. I, I've already, I've done my part on the kicks, the Kickstarter campaign. I'm stoked for that. God um, bless you. So, uh, I mean, what's that like, man? You guys have now, you've been doing this for so long now to look back and say like, yeah, I'm still at this point in my life. I'm still going into the studio and recording five iron frenzy songs. Like it's gotta be pretty crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we're a lot better at it. Um, it's kind of cool because I'm doing a lot of background vocals here in my studio. And if, if we don't like a horn part, I can redo it. Um, so I love that, that it's not like, you know, we lay our stuff down, we had two weeks and then you listen back and you're just like, oh man, I, I would have done this differently. You know, I can redo it. So I love that. Um, I, I really think we are a lot better. We are actually, this is the first one we've actually self-produced um, through and through. And then we're having the guy that produced Engine of a Million Plots. He's actually, he, he, he did track the vocals and produce those and he is mixing but he's we are actually producing the record and it's a lot more traditional than you think going back to what we were talking about how you know we were really a power pop band this has i would say five or six actually pretty traditional ska tracks on it with sort of an 80s slant and i i really like it a lot that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm, I'm intrigued. Excited to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to spread the love, man. I, I really want to talk about Singing Serpent and how you kind of made that jump from what you were doing to, to, to this new. I mean, it seems like you've got quite a niche cut out for yourself. It's kind of an interesting little hole you've carved out in the market to do this kind of work. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel really fortunate. I, uh, I met a good friend, Glenn Galloway, who was playing with a band, you know, going back to the Christian market being such a bizarre conglomerate <laughs> of different styles. So he was in this like experimental hip hop sort of like pavement meets beastie boys kind of band. Right. So out there and, um, but he was on our label. So here was, we were, what was, what was the band? 
soul junk. Okay. Not all of them. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, here we were sharing the stage with him every night. So we went on tour with him and, uh, you know, I got to know him. He's a great guy and he was working on a business plan the whole time. And, uh, I'm not going to name names, but there was a couple of guys in the band had just gotten married. And, um, this was a really long tour. It was a summer tour. And I think we were out for like three months and these guys had only been married like two, two months or something like that. So they're just losing their minds. And, uh, we played this show in Albuquerque and, um, one of the guys in the band, he threw the set cause he just, he just couldn't wait to be done and see his wife. Cause she was flying in that night. And I remember I was just like, man, like all these people here paid to see this. And, you know, I knew then that this wasn't going to last forever. And so <laughs> I was like, so Glenn, this business plan you're working on, <laughs> tell me more about this. Cause I knew, I knew that this gig wasn't going to last very long. I could just see it happening. And so he started telling me about it. I was like, man, that sounds great. And I, uh, my fiance and I had moved to Los Angeles. We we're kind of trying to make a go of it there and I had no gig at all. So I was like, Hey, how can I help? Can I do books? Can I do whatever? So that's how I got started at that time. It was just him and this guy named Rafter Roberts. I don't know if you've heard of Rafter. He's a, an artist on the asthmatic kitty label. Um, so it was just Glenn and Rafter and myself. I, I, there was a guy at uh, a professor at Berkeley when I was studying there and he taught jingle writing. Um, and, and what he said is I'd rather do 10 Joe's pizzas than one American airlines or whatever, you know, cause he said the bigger companies, it's so much harder to do that process because you just got to go through so many layers of approval and they often have no idea, a uh, realistic idea of what they want. I mean, when you're working with these huge brands, but you're doing something that's so inherently subjective. I mean, how, how has that challenge been for you to kind of find a direction for what you're trying to do? Well, to me, it's really more dictated by the brief, like a really funny brief, you know, that just makes sense musically. That's so much easier mm -hmm. than, you know, it really depends on the creative teams. Some people, they just don't know what they like until they hear it. And all they know is what they don't like in the meantime. And they're very frustrating to work with because they're just like, oh, we're thinking something like this. And then you show them a bunch of ideas and they're like, no, nah, how about something like this? <laughs> and they, they just don't know what they like until they hear it. And that's, you know, the worst kind of creative. Uh, the best kind of creative is a person that actually intentionally knows how to make something. You know, we're saying we're thinking something more Oconee, only put this kind of spin on it. And, you know, we want this and this and this. And then we just, just go to town and uh you know, cause that's, that's a vision. Um, and so it doesn't really matter if the brand's big or small. It's really, it's really how much of a vision the creative team has. So, so, so I've watched a handful of the reels, you know, Michael listed off some of the you know major brands that you guys are working with. Um, to what degree of, of what we hear are you guys doing? Are you just doing the music portion? Are you doing any voiceover sound effects? What portion of the, of the ads and commercials and stuff are you actually doing? Totally. Depending on the job. Um, there's um, a spot that's on the air right now. It's for Uber eats. It's where Skywalker meets uh, Picard. Have you seen that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we did the sound design for it and we did the music and um, I guess that's it. We did not mix it. Sometimes we mix, sometimes we'll do voiceover. I just did a campaign for a, a tomato company where that involved a remote 
voiceover record and then we assembled everything, did sound design and we mixed, I think, uh, six or seven different deliverables. And, um, I've got a project coming up where we're going to do all of that for about 10 different spots. And then we're also doing 5.1 surround mixes and, and then we're doing with all of these, we'll do like broadcast and web versions. You know, the broadcast has a very specific set of specs. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll do it all. And how closely are you, when you are, how close are you working with the video side of things? Because so much of the video has to do with, uh, or when there's like hits and movements within the video that have to be coincided with music. Um, how are you working with the video side of it? Sometimes they'll want music first and they'll actually work around the track. But most of the time it's like, you know, here's our cut. We'd love a little push here and, you know, hit this and that's scoring and that's what we do well. So both are a lot of fun. I mean, if they want to, if they want to cut around the music, fantastic. But unfortunately, most of the time when they're doing that, they're licensing, you know, Justin Timberlake or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was just kind of giggling thinking about this because I'm working right now on a, a college choir recording, um, and it was, you know, it's like. 13 or 14 minutes of music, but I, you know, I'm mixing it and then I'm mastering it and then I'm doing a revision for, so, you know, it's, it's two or three days now that if you stand outside my office, you're going to hear this, these two or three songs over and over again. So I'm like, wow, that's got to be just amplified, uh, to, to the nth degree when you're working on a 30 second TV spot for, for days or weeks at a time, like <laughs> you go home and just hear, hear the jingle over and over again. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, especially me, I, I'm, I'm a person that gets something stuck in my head and it won't go away. But I, I think one of my favorite things about this job is just how fast it moves. Like, you know, a project will come in, we'll get a brief demos are doing two days and it mixes next week. So it's just like, I mean, it definitely moves fast. So th it's not quite that laborious and in, in getting to a piece and just tweaking it over and over, except for the odd job that someone's just overthinking. Um, and those happen and they're kind of a bummer, but I mean, I think good things happen too when you when you go over something and you actually take the time to make it great. It's really nice to properly master something, for instance. That almost never happens. Um, so I love it when we do actually have time to to get detailed about it. But a lot of times it's pretty quick and dirty. I mean, that's that's something that I don't know a lot about. I'm very interested in that the whole you know mastering for broadcast versus mastering for internet, especially if you're doing it in surround. I mean. Uh, I, I've stuck my toe into those waters and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of standards and metrics here that I don't understand. So I'm going to just kind of back up slowly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's not that complicated, but it's, you've noticed that like on television, they try to keep things at a certain level. And I think, I think the limit is minus six DB of from, I don't know what the standard is. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a dial turner type person, but like um, there is this certain, you have to put a, a, a limiter on what you're doing and there's, there's a gauge you have to use and you have to stay within those limits. Um, so basically the broadcast versions are all quieter, you know, cause I don't know if you back in the day, it used to be like, you know, quiet, quiet ad. And then this one would come on and just be so loud. Your, your television would explode. And so they're, they're trying to like, and of course everybody wanted to be the loud one. <laughs> like right. so everyone was like trying to make their spot the loudest and um so i don't know how long ago it must have been about 10 years ago that the networks were just like okay here's the deal 
we won't play your thing if it exceeds this. And I don't, I don't think they're that militant about it, but you have to be really close. You can't exceed it by much mm-hmm. or they will pull it. So we do have to do a separate mix for that. And then of course, if it's on the web, they want it as loud as possible without distorting. Right. So we'll do two sets of mixes and then 5.1 is a whole other thing. So, um, yeah, it gets complicated. That's something that we've been seeing, you know, with obviously the shift of everything's live stream now. So we have a lot of venues and, and particular houses of worship that, you know, they're now going to their front of house engineer and saying, okay, well, we need, we need to stream this. And that's a whole different ballgame. What's coming off your console that might be headed into a PA might sound great when it comes out of the PA, but when it goes to YouTube, it might not sound so great. And yeah. so, you know, our industry on the live side of things, we've really had to shift a lot how we're thinking about you know, a, a lot of people had trouble with the game structure of the desk or with the, you know, the PA had a certain kind of tone to it that didn't translate into the, the mix when it went to streaming. So, and, you know, the loudness and all that stuff. So it's kind of been interesting to watch that stuff sort of impede into our world where like, we can't pretend that that stuff doesn't exist anymore. That's now part of our, our world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, compression does strange things to music. So I, again, something I don't know that much about, but yeah, I know what a huge difference it makes. And I'm just, yeah, that must be such a major deal for all front of house engineers right now, because everything that's the only outlet is for things to go streaming. So that's like a whole new discipline that everyone's having to learn. So when, when, when you're writing uh, actual music for some of these pieces, um, are you working with the same musicians? Is there like, a, for lack of better terms, a kind of a go-to band of people who are doing it, or is it change from score to score? We have a, we have a very small staff, um, and then we have <clears throat> a very small stable of permalancers. So probably like five people, four, four people that are involved on almost everything just because they're so versatile and then we'll kind of tool out our team based on, you know, what kind of music it is. You know, we'll, we'll get the experts involved, people that specialize in that genre. Um, most in my business, most everybody that does it well is a multi-instrumentalist hmm. and they'll bring in specialists to like <laughs> my, my guy in New York, like he's, I think three tracks in a row, he's brought in this slap bass guy. <laughs> it's just awesome. Like it, it, it just like totally sets it apart because, you know, having a real shredder on the track, like it really stands out. You're like, geez, that is incredible. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll bring in players, you know, but it's very strategic. It takes a long time to get players out again. Our deadline will be like, okay, here's the brief. Can we have tracks tomorrow? And so like, if a player can come in the next couple of hours, that's great. But like a lot of times that just doesn't happen. So mm-hmm. since well, Nam isn't happening this year, uh, <laughs> all the slap bass players are still unemployed and they don't have a <laughs> their talents. So it's a dying breed. It's hard to find. I'm, I'm glad you found it. It's awesome. With, yeah. with it being such a small group of uh, people who are playing um, and consistently in the same studio, is a lot of your setups, um, mic placements, uh, you, know, you know, EQ and compressions, a lot of that dialed. So really, you're just working on arranging, or are you still have to like sculpt placement and EQ and compression and stuff for every one of the, every time you guys record. Oh man, I, I wish we were that pristine about what we did, but it's pretty quick and dirty. Um, full disclosure: I just moved studios, and so I'm actually today I was crawling around in the attic trying to pull 
cat five and XLR cables for the surround sound and all that stuff. So like, I'm just getting it set up. So truth be told, our vocals are currently happening in the control room right behind the composer. Uh, the bass player just plugs right into the preamp and you know, that's about as far as it goes. We haven't brought in a drummer or a, anything acoustic. We haven't brought in in forever. So now is that um, because of COVID or just because you guys been doing sample in the box? I mean, we do a lot of MIDI and there are major advantages to it. It's hmm. first of all, like big rock drums, like the amount of effort that you have to go th- through to get a good big sounding rock drum compared to like a lot of the samples and triggers they have now, it's just like, it's not worth it. And then half the time we'll do a piece of music and the client will be like, ah, can you make this faster? Can you imagine if you had like a, <laughs> a, a, a an audio file and they ask you to make it faster? I mean, you, you can do some stuff, but that would yeah. really cause frustration. But if it's a MIDI file, you're like, sure. I mean, yeah. I even had a, I even had a, a job the other day where they were incorporating this musical sting at the end and we had this demo and they really liked it, but they're like, I really wish it was in the key of C. We're like, okay, hit a button and it's in the key of C. <laughs> well, I, I know? Think, yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a difference in that like you're not making an album, right? So there's no, this is going to sound wrong. There's not a sense of, oh man, uh, there's a difference between having the pride of making an album that you're going to then produce live. Oh man, did, did I did that guy really record those drums or not? Like if you're making, um, you know, again the, the the bed of a music behind a car commercial, you know, it's there's no shame in the fact that like it didn't have a real drummer do. Like no one's going to know or care, right? Well, I, again, it really depends on the brief. Like a lot of, I, I like this Chevrolet stuff. This this man in the street thing where the guy with the beard is always surprising these people with some diabolical <laughs> you know what i mean those things if you listen to the music it's just like pizzicato strings and a triangle that's the song <laughs> like who cares like pizzicato strings right. don't sound a lot better in person than you know that's just one of those midi samples that sounds fantastic and well, so I, like I, why would you bring yeah. in a violin player for that like it's it's pointless I have, a, I have a Yamaha grand piano in my living room and I still use my $99 native instruments piano most of the time because it sounds great, you know, and yeah, never I don't goes want out it, of tune. Yeah. I don't want it to move the mics around and, Oh, you know, there was traffic noise. I got to do it. Like just it's, it's, it's faster, it's easier and it's a great product. So like no shame on my part, you know? No, I mean, it's just, I mean, for doing things quick and dirty, but you know, another example is we did this thing for uh, the New York times where it was, uh, we did a full 90 second three movement symphony <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sort of vamping off awesome. of uh, Beethoven's ninth. Like it was, this was intense. That's like, cool. And the guy that, that I hired to do it, well, I hired a bunch of people, but the guy that won it is a guy that's a great violinist and, and he fakes it on cello. So he, he played sort of live strings over the MIDI and we got timpani drums and woodwinds and brass and the, the whole thing. And so everything was MIDI and he ended up winning the job. And um, when we finally got everything approved and locked, he brought in live players, you know, so then then we sweetened it with real stuff. And man, it was magical. So and in that case, it makes sense. You know, I bet your creative a lot of times stuff gets churning when that happens, though. Like when dude shows up with a half of an orchestra, you're like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah. 
Well, even in that case, with what we do, it's usually one person at a time. It will bring in just because of the the economics of it, bringing in one woodwind player who can play flute and saxophone and clarinet is so much smarter than bringing in a section. It's cheaper and easier, and it's COVID. Um, and like most uh, most violinists can play viola and cello. And you know what? The secret there's a secret advantage there, which is the articulations lock in immediately when it's exactly, the same player. Exactly, because they have the same, yeah, yeah the same I, uh, intonation. I know a guy who was in an acapella duo, um, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll tell you." He's like, "I'll give you a secret." Like a lot of the backgrounds is just all me because he's like, "I nail it the first time because I know exactly what I did." So that that's a nice little trick. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's an amazing shortcut. So the the short answer is that we end up sweetening what we do. Like, for some reason, symbols never sound right in I, program I drums. To me. We've been over this internally here, but yeah, yeah. I hate symbols. They never yeah. sound right. So, well, <laughs> I've got players that you know just they have a hi hat and a couple of symbols, and they'll just hit those right there in their control room, and it makes all the difference. It does. <laughs> you know, it's not high art. How can you not get a MIDI symbol right? Who do you need to talk to about that? <laughs> Like they exist, they're just not very good, so people don't use them. The dog bark well, is more I believable mean, than think the about symbols. like the overtones, like yeah. in the room, and just all the different stuff that you hear in a symbol is like it's tough to duplicate. Yeah, and it's just. But I agree with you. Like the the attempt that I've heard is just awful. Like <laughs> it just sounds so fake. It lasts like it a second. Symbols. Are like yeah. the hair growth serum for men. It just doesn't work. <laughs> well, they, they have, I think the, other they have s- the splash symbol down, like yeah, splash symbols and dog bark. Right, dog bark. But splash symbol. <laughs> and that what's the little? It's like ooh, ooh that one. Uh, but there's there's so many articulations with a symbol that a drummer will do, and so many very subtle variations of that. That I think that's where you run into trouble when you try to sample it. You know, it just doesn't behave naturally. Yeah, and again, it's getting better. Like the you know, the virtual instruments are kind of mind blowing what they could do now, uh, compare to compared to five years ago for sure. Um, and it's always getting better. I still am a, I'm a brass snob. I think most brass sounds terrible because, um, the thing is with brass is if you're going to program brass, you've got to, you've got to detune it and it's got to be, um, the attack has, it's got to be loose because you know, people aren't machines like so they all hit things at slightly different times and then the 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 dynamics of it you know the swelling and the and the you know the just the the range of the notes like they're always moving so if if you program in a note and it's just bah, and then cuts off like you know it's fake you know you you've got to do so much manipulation to it to make it sound believable so it's almost easier to bring in a person I think in a way, the fact that you know how to play brass instruments means that you can more successfully program them. Like one of the, the, the biggest thing that made me able to program drums and, and be happy with them was learning enough about how to play the drums to know how would a human play this part exactly, um, and where would they articulate it. And, and uh, then all of a sudden my programming started sounding like, like not terrible. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think it's, you know, it's bringing those human elements to it. Exactly. So exactly I, right. I sat last chair trumpet my whole entire career. So you're saying congratulations that I could program horns like a mother. 
<laughs> oh yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, D- depending on the depending on the genre, <laughs> the great shift is happening. So I'm I'm open to any option right now. Oh man, all these like chamber folk bands that were coming out with a horribly out of tune trumpet. Oh, yeah. awful. You still got the trumpet, Kyle? No, I. That's gonna be a setback. You're gonna have to. Yeah, I played. I played tuba for a year in high school. Um, because I one year. Well, I needed a fine art credit, and I was like, so I came out of the band teacher, and I'm like, hey, I need a fine art credit, and they're like, well, what do you want to do? I want to play, you know, play drums. Like, well, I have enough of those people, you know. I was like, she's like, I need a tuba player. I'm like, all right, you're gonna teach me. So like she she wrote out like my scale like one one two one three you know like whatever my you know, the the valve numbers were and and uh, I sat next to the Barry Sachs and I just listened for pitch next to him and I literally would write out by number on on my 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 score all all season long and uh, that's I played by number uh, and like halfway through the year I was like oh that's a one that's a one two it's a, a one three or whatever I couldn't tell you if it was ECF I couldn't tell you what note I was playing uh, but it that's was like guitar tabs yeah. only for tuba basically <laughs> is what that is yeah. It works, basically, so so you mastered it. That's what you're saying. Oh, hell yeah. I slayed it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's probably fair to say or understand from a musician standpoint, what gets your rocks off in terms uh, or where you get, feel most accomplished um, in, 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 in the music work that, you, work that you do. Where, what is, um, what is the pinnacle for you and the work that you're doing now? What intrigues you? What keeps you going? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, it's real heavy think, hitting audio journalism here. Yeah. Yeah, oh boy. What <laughs> Connor Chung coming at me? <laughs> uh, I think just improving, getting better. Um, I know that's super vague, but like, and just making the okay. I'm gonna get all like idealistic on you, but oh, like, bring it, I just Let's think, I think like helping my friends make the best thing that they can make. And like, I'm, I personally invest when somebody hires me, like I want their product, I want them to do well. I know that they're trying to make a client happy. I know that they're, you know, they studied film. They want to make something cool. And here they are making an advertisement because it pays the bills, but they want to make something that means something and they want to make something beautiful. And so why not? Let's, let's do our best. And so, you know, I just try to take each production as far as it can go. Um, and the day that I get to the place where I'm just like, who cares? It's just an advertisement. You know, I should quit because that's a lame way of going at it. So I just, you can't always have the perfect production. Not every music brief is, you know, the one that I dreamed of, but I can do as well as I can with every brief that I get. Um, is, is there, is there a type of project, um, that you, that's, that, is more fun or more intriguing versus others, or are they all just unique enough that you just want to hit them all? Like, I mean, I like hitting them. I mean, I've done a lot of like super hard hitting hip hop for ESPN recently, and I love it. Uh, they're mostly uh, European soccer spots, and you know, so they're really stylish. It's really hard hitting, authentic hip hop, and I love it. But I think probably what I get the most satisfaction out of is like chamber uh, neo orchestral music, like just beautiful cinematic music. If I could, I would make that all the time. And are you actually like composing and writing that or you hire someone to compose and write that? I'm my title's executive producer. And I find that if I try to get into the trenches and write, I'm a terrible producer because I lose all perspective. 
And so my job is to fly at 30,000 feet. Gotcha. So I have perspective and I'm listening to with every job we delivered probably eight different ideas at least. And my job is to make each of those eight ideas as good as they can be. So I'm always listening. I'm always, you know, giving suggestions, um, and just trying to, trying to keep a, a, you know, a, a perspective on what we're doing. And I try to cover a range, you know, I don't want like eight pieces of music that are exactly the same thing. Um, like this New York time things, uh, this New York times thing, they wanted, um, they wanted like modern jazz. They wanted traditional jazz. They wanted Beethoven. They wanted something that was sort of like almost like a Gershwin kind of thing where it was like a hybrid between classical and jazz. And then I tried to do something that was more um, almost like Aaron Copeland cat and mouse, like obscure piano kind of piece. Mm. So like I covered a, a big range of styles and I tried to make each of those approaches as good as I could was a lot of work so are, are so you, you, you are, go ahead oh. go ahead Kyle so you guys have grown pretty pretty big too uh we were looking through some pictures of your studios you guys actually have an east and a west now we do I'm you know I'm the east coast and uh our I mean our definitely our flagship is in San Diego that studios I think almost 6,000 square feet and we have a really big live room it's uh beautifully designed it's uh acoustically perfect um and we have i think in addition to the big control room and live room we have i think seven different small studios and then there's another small live room in between two of them so it's giant um and then in new york we have i basically have two control rooms a very small live room and a vocal iso so it's a very streamlined operation in new york so i think i think we're it's about that point in the episode where we have to get in we well we food food good quality food is very important to us here at the okay. Sleeping noise podcast because <laughs> we've all we've all toured so we all know know the importance of being well fed um so i mean do you look back fondly on any uh local specialties when you were on the road with the band or anything like that absolutely i always loved finding the local mom and pop place um mickey's diner in saint paul is one that comes to mind i love that place it's a it's one of the old trolley car diners in downtown saint paul and uh no one does dairy like people in minnesota i remember the french toast there was amazing and just you know everything about it was awesome i love that um so many i remember getting polish food and in uh downtown milwaukee and just I mean, all kinds of different yeah exactly it's so great all over the country there's just we would always try to get the local thing we would try to find a mom and pop place and i just love it i'm of the firm belief that uh, it's always time for breakfast I, i'm not one of those breakfast has to be in the morning people uh, so yeah, if there's, if I see a greasy spoon, you know, breakfast place at, at, uh, 9 PM, I'm doing it. Oh uh, yeah. After show, like yeah, eggs and hash browns with lots of Tabasco. Just so go. great. <laughs> so great. Well, Dennis, I wasn't quite done with the other questions before we got the food. So it's, but it's all good. So I <laughs> 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 got to break it up a little bit, man. Come on. Back around. <laughs> 
good. I, we I, definitely I, crushed the food part, though. Well, Michael shot me down on food at the beginning of the episode, so, you know, it's all good. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I was trying to go there, and he, he was just too excited to get you on here. I get it. Yeah, man. Um, but uh, so when you're, you know, I'm just curious, um, when you are looking at other pieces of spots and and uh and commercials and stuff are what is that like for you are you ripping that apart thinking about that hey i didn't like what they did here oh i see what they did here and using that for inspiration like, like just like anyway listen to another record and hear how someone else mixed something is that is that, is that, is that, any of that go through your head yeah definitely i mean there's certainly craft to it and i think the more you do it you 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 understand the role of music is to support and almost be you know, to amplify the emotion of what's going on and stay out of the way. Mm. Um, so that's the craft of it for, for most music underscores. So if you're making a jingle, that's different, but right. We don't really write. I mean, how many jingles have you heard recently? <laughs> they don't happen very often. They what about come back? What about, <laughs> no, what about knowing the consumer? Is any part of your work knowing the consumer, understanding how they're going to perceive things and how much have you had to study that? Absolutely. Like, you know, demographic is one of the first questions that come up. And, you know, so if music is open-ended, that's one of the first question, who are you trying to reach with this? And then, you know, regionally, where are they located? How old are they? What kind of people are they? And what, and therefore, what would they listen to? Um, but creatives at, at ad, ad agencies, they sort of pride themselves on being well-listened. And so, lately they will come to us with you know we're kind of thinking this and this and this and this we're like okay and we we get to like i love it because we get to be chameleons it's like you know well that's an interesting track how did they do that yeah let's let's tear that apart let's let's see how we can make that on our end well, so when you when you work the taco bell commercial i think i'll be <laughs> very satisfied like my loves coming together <laughs> And you just brought it full circle because you were talking about tacos at the yeah, end. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Back to food. <laughs> Always. Uh, what What was the hardest transition uh, from doing just straight up the music as you want to do to doing all, such a variety of other stuff? Was there was there was there a hard transition there at all, or was it just all around exciting? Well, I mean, the making the music part is exciting. I think most of what I do is try to conjure up business and that's tough. I mean, that's, let's face it, that's sales. Mm -hmm. And anybody that's in music didn't really think they were going to go into sales. And so anybody who owns their own business understands that you're in sales. That's what you do. Well, and I, then go if you do your job well, then you can actually do what you love, which is make what you want to make. Yeah. Now, but how, how much of that, I mean, from the from the Christian market and the label's sake, how much of that did you maybe learn from having to pander back in the days to to uh, to sell more, or was that something you guys held against? I know this is kind of going reverse a different direction, but um, I, I know that's a thing at least in the in the label market. Well, my band was pretty; we were pretty self absorbed. I mean. <laughs> We uh, we actually railed against almost everything. Like if we would go on a tour and the band, the headlining band would ask us to match their prices for T-shirts because they wanted to sell them for $19. 
and we knew good and well that we were getting ours made for $3.85 each, we'd be like, no, we're going to double the double our cost and that's what we're going to sell them for. If you have a problem with it, that's too bad. Um, because we just didn't feel like that was morally okay to do to our fans. So I think we were trying to be punk rock or yeah. something like that. No, so, awesome. I mean, good. we definitely ruffled a lot of feathers with that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so we didn't really pander a whole lot. In fact, we, you know, we just kind of did things the way we wanted to do. Yeah. Well, it's, that, it's more punk style. I mean, I think that was, uh, I guess the, yeah. more of the genre you're in. So that's good. Well, so I mean, there, yeah, we, we tried to hold to our ideals like as much as we could. And, is there a point you know, when you look back though? And I mean, you came from, you know, I mean the, the early stuff was the kind of just, you know, doing it for its own. Like, was there a point when you went like, wow, we're, we're a big deal now. Like, was it, was there a moment when that, when kind of the penny dropped and you looked out and saw all the fans and they knew the words to your songs? Or was there, you know, was it kind of a gradual thing or was there a point that you really remember having that realization? Well, our experience was kind of weird because as our fan base got bigger, our sales went down because that's when downloading became a thing. Right. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, we started filling rooms with a thousand people and we were selling fewer records than we'd ever sold. So it was kind of like, I think people like us. <laughs> they, they all seem to know the words. They seem really into this. Our new album is totally tanking, but that's cool. They're, they all showed up, you know? So I don't, I don't know if we ever really felt like, yeah, we got this. We nailed this. So I think probably the closest thing to that was, I will never forget our first crowdfunding campaign where you know, we'd, we'd quit for eight years and then we got back together for a couple of barbecues and we're just like, yeah, I've been throwing around some ideas. You guys want to make something. And, um, I'll try to make it a short story, but we, you know, we decided to launch something. We recorded a song just for fun. And what we did is we're just like, Hey everybody, here's a new song we made. Do you want us to make a full length record? If you do, we're doing this crowdfunding campaign and I'm the guy that actually hit the button and, and started the campaign. And I went to rehearsal for this other band that I was in. And within 30, with actually it was like 20 minutes, within 20 minutes, we raised, you know, all $30,000 or whatever we wanted to raise. And I was like, oh my gosh, like people are actually into this. So that was probably the most memorable moment where it was just like, wow, people actually care about what we used to do. That's awesome. Yeah, it was cool. It was really touching, actually. And it's really, really, really cool to hear people like Michael supporting our our new project, you know? Yeah, man. Well, I got this spot picked out on my, my wall in my office here for the photo to go up. But, uh, you know, it was kind of I, – I, I remember exactly where I was in high school. I was in, in biology class <laughs> um, when I read your guys' announcement that you were, were – what, what, what at that point it wasn't i don't think taking a break it was just you know we're kind of done um yeah. and i was like i was crushed <laughs> and so because you know i was old enough to, i was already involved in in live sound and music and mixing and stuff and so i was like man i gotta go to a show but i wasn't old enough where i could go to a show so not being able to see you guys play was like a big source of disappointment so now i'm like yeah man they're still out there so there's still hope uh hopefully hopefully there's some shows that come along with this new record and uh, i'll get to one of them but uh yeah uh, it's it's you know it's been uh it's been just so cool to kind of have that as a constant thing as i've kind of grown professionally and personally and you know in my journey with with music and and audio and everything to kind of have you guys 
along the way. So it's, it's really been cool. And, uh, so thank you for that. And, uh, and also thanks for, for being on the show and chatting with us, dude, this is really cool. Thanks for having me, Michael and Kyle and Chris. This has been a lot of fun and I hope that we can play shows soon and I hope we can, uh, see you guys at one of them and hang out soon. Thanks. Thanks.